0: This is History West Midlands. The 400-year-long Roman occupation of Britain transformed the country's economic and social life as people from across the Roman Empire brought with them new ideas, products and amenities such as public bathhouses. It also left an indelible mark on the landscape, in the form of cities, forts and settlements. Some of these survive today as modern towns and cities, whilst others fell into disuse and were lost until archaeologists began to uncover their history. One of the most important Roman cities to be rediscovered in this way was Roxeter, near modern-day Shrewsbury. First excavated in Victorian times, it is still revealing fresh secrets of Roman life and culture today. Roger White of the University of Birmingham has been studying the site at Roxeter for 40 years and believes it has a unique place in the development of modern Britain. In this programme, Shock and Awe, Roger discusses the impacts, both positive and negative, of the Roman invasion on the native British tribes and cultures.
1: For most people, the Roman period is seen as a positive stage in the development of Britain, an era when peace was rapidly established after a swift conquest and the population could relax into the delights of better housing, a wider range of food and the novelty of public bathing. There is awareness, too, of the Roman army and its high-profile presence in Britain. Most monuments today that people visit and think about when seeking out Roman Britain, such as Hadrian's Wall, are military in origin. This rather rosy view of the Roman period first emerged in the Victorian era, when a growing awareness of Roman remains in Britain grew apace following the widespread redevelopment of many towns and cities in that era. This was, of course, the time when Britain itself was head of an empire. So there is an amount of conscious and unconscious weighing up of the benefits of empire, of the contrast between the modern British state and its impressive earlier counterpart. However, there was the added frison that during the Roman Empire, the British were the ones who were colonised, beneath the military might and intellectual and cultural superiority of the Romans. As Britain moved from a colonial to a commonwealth power, so the intellectual debate has shifted. Was the experience of the British under Roman rule really such a positive development? Did we lose a growing and unique Iron Age culture under the jackboot of Imperial storm troopers? Modern studies of Roman Britain seek out identity and the ordinary British people living in the innumerable native farms found scattered across our countryside, rather than focusing solely on the Roman army and the structures of Imperial government in the province. We are also increasingly recognising the ethnic and religious diversity that existed in Britain in the Roman period. Both approaches are versions of a history that have an element of truth, but it is more than likely that reality lies somewhere between the two poles. The Romans did bring good and bad things with them. The native peoples were oppressed, but also took advantage of the opportunities, as any people will in time of war and occupation. There is little doubt that in an area like the West Midlands, away from the direct line of invasion and conquest, the arrival of the Roman army will have been a shocking and high-impact event, a time of drama and decisions that forced people to take sides. Who would be the Quislings and collaborators, and who the freedom fighters and guerrillas? While archaeology is not able to put names or faces to such people, it can tell us of the profound social and economic change that people in the West Midlands experience in the transition from native to Roman rule. This is undoubtedly a traumatic time, yet in a longer time span of the Roman occupation of Britain, equivalent to the period from James I to now, it was a relatively brief yet intense period, lasting perhaps two generations, 60 years, in the West Midlands, before the army moved on to consolidate and hold Northern and Western Britain. Before we examine the impact of the army, we must consider and characterise the society they encountered first. For the West Midlands, this is less easy than it might appear, as there was a high degree of regional diversity, perhaps reflecting the three tribes that dominated the area in the Roman period. In the south of the region lay the Dubunii, occupying Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Warwickshire, but whose main territory seemed to lie to the south in the Cotswolds. To the east were the Coriol of northern Warwickshire and Staffordshire, whose centre was located further east into Leicestershire, and lastly the Cornovi, occupying much of Shropshire and Cheshire. Evidence for two of these groupings survives in a distribution of high-value coins, minted by the Dabani and the Coriol which circulated within their spheres of influence. But it seems that the Cornovi did not issue coins at all, nor do they seem to have used pottery much, unlike the other two tribes. While we have surviving weapons and evidence for chariots and horse equipment suggestive of warfare, there are surprisingly little archaeological evidence for endemic violence in the shape of burnt settlements or war graves. Perhaps weapons, chariots, and horse riding were activities for elite display and or hunting more than for active engagement in conquest or self-defense, although it seems unlikely that there will not have been any warfare. Few of the settlements of these tribes have been excavated in enough detail to allow them to be characterised, but in public perception the tribes are associated with the hill forts that liberally dot the region, especially on its western side. Some of these, like British Camp in the Morvans, or the Rekin and Old Oswestry in Shropshire, may well still have been occupied, but there is increasing evidence for the higher status families living in small, detached and stoutly defended farmsteads, often protected by one or more ditches and banks. Some of these banks and ditches enclose large spaces that could have been used to corral cattle at night. And the suspicion is that, for the conovi at least, wealth was measured not in coin, but in cattle. Only a few industries can be attested for these peoples. They worked in fine bronze casting and ironsmithing. The latter produced in large quantities in centres such as Western Underpenyard in Worcestershire, but also produced salt from the brine springs of both Cheshire and Worcestershire. This important commodity was exported widely across the region and further afield, since salt was essential for the production of leather and for keeping meat. In short, the evidence is that these were well-established communities with extensive trade networks, but without direct connection to the Roman world. All that was about to change. The invasion and occupation of Britain by the Emperor Claudius in AD 43 is less famous than Caesar's landings of nearly a century earlier but the lesson had been learnt that an overwhelming force was necessary, around 44,000 soldiers. Claudius' generals also had the advantage of a century of Roman trade between northern Gaul and Germany with Britain, so that there was a clear understanding of how to navigate the channel and where to land safely. Although often crudely characterised as a machine, implying an unbending and inflexible approach to warfare, the Roman army was certainly ruthless and effective but its advantages on a campaign like that in Britain lay in simpler human virtues. First and foremost, Rome's army was a professional standing army with agreed pay, terms and conditions of service and routes of progression. It included citizens, legionaries, and non-citizens, auxiliaries, and fought largely on foot with the auxiliaries providing a cavalry arm. The emphasis on training, discipline and aggressive tactics made it an overwhelming force against brave but untrained native levies, most of whom are unlikely to have seen significant sustained combat. More than this, though, the army was expected to operate as a self-contained and highly mobile force, able to take on enemies swiftly while still being able to defend themselves through the construction of temporary marching or campaign forts, many of which are known from the West Midlands. Some idea of the speed of the conquest can be gathered from archaeological evidence, which shows that a fortified annex to a fort, built in northern Oxfordshire at Alchester, on the borders of the West Midlands, was constructed of timber felled in AD 44, only a year after the first landing and subsequent short but bloody war against the Catuvellauni. Rome's policy against enemies as encountered in conquests like that in Britain took three basic routes. First, there was a declared enemy, the reason for war in the first place. In this case, it was the aggression of the Catuvellauni of southeast Britain, who had attacked tribes friendly to Rome, known to be the Atrebates of hampshire Berkshire. The enemy was to be defeated as quickly and as ruthlessly as possible. Its capital, at Colchester, was taken and its land and wealth confiscated for the state. A garrison was imposed and its fighting men, largely taken into the Roman army and sent overseas. Anyone who joined with the declared enemy would be treated likewise. Second, the remaining tribes that the army encountered would be offered a chance to declare their position before being attacked. As long as they submitted, then there was every likelihood this would be accepted, and crucially, their existing elites would remain in place, so long as they were acceptable to Rome. This seems to be in the case of most, if not all of the people in the West Midlands, since we have no evidence for resistance, and we know from an inscription in Rome that at least 11 kings surrendered to Claudius. The third group were those tribes that were already allied with Rome, famously the Acane of East Anglia, the Brigantes of Yorkshire, Lancashire, and the Atrebites and Regni of Hampshire and Sussex. They were given client-king status, that is, they kept their ruler for his or her lifetime, but would then be absorbed into the larger province. If we assume that the conquest of the West Midlands was largely peaceful, even if there were some clashes and bloodshed, as is implied by the finding of used javelins on the rekin, then how was the occupation undertaken? Notoriously, the Roman army is famed for its forts and roads, and there is certainly evidence for both in the region. Surviving forts can be seen as earthworks at the Lunt near Coventry, at Metchley by the University Hospital in Birmingham, and at Walton in Shropshire, for example, while one of the finest stretches of Roman roads in Britain can be found in Sutton Park, Birmingham. Forts and the roads linking them were not located everywhere across the region, however. They tended to cluster in certain key locations, such as around Lemster in Herefordshire, Rockster in Shropshire, or Greensforge and Wall in Staffordshire. The roads might follow existing routes or create new ones, but straight away their construction will have changed the dynamics of the local economy, since these routes brought in goods from across the province and empire to support the garrison now established across the region. This would have included exotica such as wine, olive oil, olives, fish sauce, figs, dates, fine pottery, glassware and any number of other such articles, most of which would have been strange and new to the inhabitants. Much of this material was supplied to the army itself under contract, but of course the army had to rely on local produce too. Some idea of the difficulties of supply can be seen in a letter written at Binderlander in the 90s AD just about the time that Roxter ceased to be a fortress. Octavius writes to his comrade Candidus in haste about various deals he has set up.
2: The hundred pounds of sinew from Marinus, I will settle up. From the time when you wrote about this matter, he has not even mentioned it to me. I have several times written to you that I have bought about 5,000 modi of ears of grain, on account of which I need cash. Unless you send me some cash, at least five hundred denarii, the result will be that I shall lose what I have laid out as a deposit, about three hundred denari, and I shall be embarrassed. So I ask you, send me some cash as soon as possible. The hides which you write are at Caterick. Write that they be given to me, and the wagon about which you write. And write to me what is with that wagon. I would have already been to collect them, except that I did not care to injure the animals while the roads are bad. See with Tertius about the eight and a half denarii which you received from Fatalis. He has not credited them to my account. Know that I have completed the 170 hides, and I have 119 modi of threshed barley. Make sure that you send me cash, so that I may have ears of grain on the threshing floor. Moreover, I have already finished threshing all that I had. A messmate of our friend Frontias has been here. He was wanting me to allocate him hides, and that being so, was ready to give cash. I told him I would give him the hides by 1st of March. He decided that he would come on the 13th of January. He did not turn up, nor did he take any trouble to obtain them, since he had hides. If he had given the cash, I would have given him them. I hear that Frontinius Julius has for sale, at a high price, the leatherware which he bought here for five denarii apiece. Greet spectators and firmus. I have received letters from Gluco. Farewell.
1: Meat, wool, grain, iron, lead and especially timber were materials that we know the army will have exploited straight away. The last of these, timber, was required in prodigious quantities for the construction of the many forts and for the fortress of 20 hectares at Roxeter. The construction of the forts will have denuded the forest for miles around changing the landscape radically, even though much of it was already apparently farmland. The working practices of the army were that the buildings and elements of a fort would be prefabricated at the place of felling and then reassembled on site. As a result, they would have sprung up with astonishing speed and their size would have dwarfed anything that the local people would have seen before. Nothing would have made the presence of the army more obvious to local people. These are the tangible elements that the army will have brought with them, but there were intangible practices that we can also deduce will have had a profound impact. First, the arrival of the army will have introduced the concept of civilian and soldier for the first time, a complete break with native society, where fighting men were farmers too. Soldiers operated under the rule of Roman law that the natives were expected to abide by too and clearly had overwhelming force when necessary to impose their will, for example, in seeking the resources they needed. Rome knew, however, that to willfully antagonise a population was not in their own interests, but trading with people who had little concept of the use or function of money will initially have been problematic. Similarly, soldiers will inevitably have sought to find sexual partners, willing or unwilling. How were unfortunate women maltreated by soldiers or forced into prostitution looked upon by a society that had probably rarely encountered such issues. We can't know the answer, but one can suspect that there will have been such cases, even if regularised by marriage later. These are the negative aspects, but there were positives too. The Romans were very tolerant of the religious views of others, so long as they did not conflict directly with their own or transgress Roman religious law. They will have recognised much in native worship of deities of the countryside, equating their gods with the local ones or directly adopting them, as was probably the case with Sabrina, the goddess of the River Severn. The expression of religious devotion and commemoration of the dead in another introduced rite, cremation, was made manifest by another innovation, written and spoken Latin. Communication between soldiers and civilians is less fraught than we might suspect. Many of the auxiliary troops came from northern Gaul or Germany, and they spoke a language closely related to British, as far as we know. Similarly, the Latin-speaking citizen troops, such as those from Northern Italy, commemorated on tombstones at Rockster, will also have been familiar with at least some British or Gaulish. So communication was possible, if perhaps initially slow. For some parts of the region, the transition to Roman ways of life was quicker and more enthusiastically adopted than in others. For the Dabunni in the south and east, Their initial familiarity with Roman economic, social and religious practices led to a relatively swift adoption of Roman material culture. It is noticeable how much more pottery and brooches, for example, are found in this area than elsewhere in the West Midlands. For the Coriol and Cornovii, the change was slower and for the more rural areas did not appear to happen much at all. This was not problematic as the Romans did not force anyone to become Roman or to adopt Roman ways if they did not want to, so long as they paid their taxes. The contrast between the two regions is summarised, albeit cynically, by the Roman writer Tacitus.
2: And so the Britons were gradually led on to the amenities that make vice agreeable. Arcades, baths and sumptuous banquets. They spoke of such novelties as civilisation, when really they were only a feature of enslavement.
1: It was an agreeable enslavement, perhaps. But the invented words of the Caledonian leader Calgarchus, also written by Tacitus cast a different light on affairs
2: robbery butchery rapine the liars call empire they create a desolation and call it peace
0: To find out more about the unique history of Roxeter visit the website www.english-heritage.org.uk and search for Roxeter Roman City. Or read Roger White and Philip Barker's book, Roxeter, Life and Death of a Roman City, which is available from Amazon and other bookstores. You can listen to the other podcasts in the Romans in the West Midlands series and find many more fascinating films, podcasts and articles at the History West Midlands website, www.historywm.com.